You're listening to Drones in America on MarketScale. Your host, Grant Guillot, leads the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice Team for the law firm of Adams & Reese. Every week, he will be chatting with leaders, influencers, and experts who are impacting the rapidly growing commercial drone industry in the United States to help us through the complex web of technology and policy. Welcome back to Drones in America by MarketScale. I'm your host, Grant Giat, and I lead the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice Team at the law firm of Adams & Reese. Our guest this week is Don Zoldai, retired colonel from the United States Air Force Academy. Dawn is a 25-year Air Force JAG Horse veteran. She's currently the acting director of the Air Force's Center for Character and Leadership Development. She's an internationally recognized expert on unmanned aircraft system law and policy. She was named a 2019 Women to Watch in Unmanned Aircraft Systems, and she's the founder and CEO of P3 Tech Consulting. Dawn Zoldai, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Graham. What a privilege to be here. So first, I want to congratulate you on the many accomplishments you've been amassing. You know, in 2019, you were named a woman to watch in UAS. Recently, you were recognized um, by the American Bar Association in conjunction with their celebration of the anniversary of the 19th Amendment. You also have this uh, very great career, notable career in uh, military service, and I want to thank you for your service to our country. And who better to have as an advocate for our industry than someone who has served in the Air Force? So, thank you so much for all your service, and congratulations on your accomplishments. Well, thank you so much, Grant. Really appreciate it. It's it's humbling to be recognized for doing things that you love to do. So today we're going to discuss a topic that's near and dear to everyone in the industry, and very timely. It's remote identification, and many colleagues and I in the industry have been discussing how this is, if not the most significant, one of the most significant developments in recent years for the commercial drone industry. We're going to get into certain legal aspects of remote identification, such as privacy rights and uh, um, other constitutional issues. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background with the Air Force? Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably a great segue to the mandatory disclaimer that I'm going to give you right now, which is that the views and opinions I'm giving here are solely my own, and they don't reflect those of the DOD, the Air Force, the Air Force Academy. They do not constitute endorsement of any organization that I might mention, nor are they intended to influence the action of federal employees or their agencies. Thank you for that, Don. So noted. So um, tell us a little bit about you know, how your career in Air Force led you to become involved with drones. Yeah, absolutely. So I commissioned uh, directly into the Air Force in 1993 after graduating from law school, and I entered the Air Force JAG Corps, which is the basically the law firm for the Air Force on the active duty side. And during that time, about almost well, literally 24-7, 24 years, 7 months, I performed duties at all kinds of echelons, you know, from the, the lowest level all the way up to headquarters Air Force. And I culminated my career at the rank of colonel and as the head lawyer at the Air Force Academy on the military side. Uh, I worked for two years after that as the uh, business matters attorney at the Air Force Academy, 
with the Secretary of the Air Force General Counsel's Office, where I focused on, I'll call it university functions, like legislative and governance and fiscal issues. And as you noted, since then, I've trans transitioned over to be the acting director of the Academy's Center for Character and Leadership Development, which is a faculty position. So uh, what I tell people is I'm doing leadership by day and then drones by night, weekends, leave, pretty much any waking moment when I'm not otherwise uh, at work. Do you ever sleep? Rarely. I think so. I, uh, the reason I bring that up is I see constantly how you're working hard to promote the industry. You're on social media. You know, you're doing things for, um, for, for various publications. And so thank you for all your hard work. But I want to kind of pivot and talk about P3 Tech and why you started it. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started in October of 2019. And, you know, it's a consulting firm. So I'm not giving legal advice in my P3 Tech capacity. But what this, what my company is all about is is connecting people that have a passion for advanced tech, with an emphasis on drones and UAM, with the platform, with the uh, policies and programs that they need to advance the industry and their businesses. And so, primarily, I'm doing a lot of speaking, teaching, writing, educational events, conference planning, things of that nature, strategic consulting. Uh, so I'm having a ton of fun. I've got some amazing clients, and uh, it, it's been quite a journey. So what's some of the work you're doing as, you know, in your capacity as running P3 Tech, what are some of the interesting things you've been up to the past few months since you started it? Yeah, absolutely. So I, everything I, I've been doing almost is, is hung up on my website, which is www.p3techconsulting.com. One of my first clients was Drone. And you probably just saw their recent announcement that they pushed their conference to December now, given the COVID situation. But uh, for, for example, for Interdrone, I'm, I'm a adjunct conference planner for them. And so I've been curating content. And uh, it's been awesome because I've been able to use my position to help get some amazing women onto panels that, you know, including some of the women to watch and uh, some of the folks from Women in Drones. That's another one of my clients. Uh, I've been working with women in drones on their strategic plan for their women to watch in UAS awards program, the, the award that I actually received. So that's been pretty amazing to help them take that award program to the next level. And Grant, if you haven't heard, they've actually, again, given the COVID environment, extended the nomination period for those awards for another 30 days or so. So I just like to put the plug out there. if. There are women in this audience you should self-nominate. Men in the audience, please nominate a woman that you believe is deserving of these awards because they're life-changing, and, and I'm a living example of that. The other thing I'm doing is uh, working with Inside on Man Systems Magazine. I'm a uh, regular legal columnist for them, and I've written some really interesting articles. I say they're interesting because they're interesting to me. I, I get to research all kinds of topics that uh, that I that I get to learn as I go, including about tribal law. That was a recent one. And I've been working with Commercial UAV Americas on my Law Tech Connect Continuing Legal Education Workshop. I think we might talk about that maybe later, Grant, but um, that, that one I'm really excited about. It's, it's going to be a first-of-its-kind standalone legal event that anybody can attend, but in conjunction with the CUAV event in September in Las Vegas. 
And um, boy, so many other things that I'm working on, I'm working with the Urban Low Altitude Transport Association or ULTRA. I'm a strategic advisor to them. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at UAM and I've got some forthcoming articles about that that they're helping me with. And uh, I was just recently nominated to the board of, of UAS Colorado which is a nonprofit here in Colorado that's trying to advance the industry in the state. So those are kind of the big brush, uh, broad brush things that I'm working with right now, working on. And uh, boy, it's it's been pretty amazing. Well, congratulations on all of that. And I, I, I want to back up for a second and let you know you're not the only one that finds your articles interesting. Um, you know, I, I think your, uh, your publications are always very well thought out, very timely, and um, we're going to get into some of those issues in a little bit, but congratulations on all that. Now, you mentioned your writings. You were one of the first ones out of the gate when Remote ID went live on New Year's Eve to write an article for Interdrone. Why don't you give us a quick overview of that whole process? Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to give the 30,000-foot view of this because Remote ID, as you know, is very complex as proposed, and it's about a 316-page document. But the bottom line here, uh, for those that aren't overly familiar with it, is that it, the FAA kind of carved the world into three different types of UAS, for per small UAS, for purposes of this rule. Standard RID UAS, limited RID UAS, and no RID UAS. Now, now standard RID UAS, for, those are supposed to be required to broadcast identification and location information directly from the drone and simultaneously transmit it to an RID UAS service supplier or US, USS through an internet connection. Limited RID would be required to transmit information through the internet only, no broadcast requirements, but because of that they would need to be designed to operate no more than 400 feet from a control station. And UAS that had no RID would only be able to operate in what they're calling FRIAs or FAA recognized identification areas. And so that those are the different kinds of UAS under this rule with RID. And the importance of RID is that there are message elements that would need to be transmitted by standard and limited RID USS and th these message elements would go through these third-party USS's almost like a cell phone service provider. Now that information that's supposed to be these message elements or MEs I call them they, they include things like the UIS's identity you know the manufacturer assigned serial number things like that control station latitude and longitude above ground level latitude and longitude for the drone for standard RID only control station UAS barometric pressure altitude, coordinated universal time mark or UTC mark, and the emergency status indicator. Now the interesting thing about this is that under the proposed rule, all of these message elements would actually be available to the public. Now if you recall Grant, the and I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up because I kind of want to um you know, discuss in this industry, I, I say, you know, there, there are two wheels. Um, and right now they're not necessarily moving in, con 
in conjunction with one another, but they need to in order for drone use to become ubiquitous. And that's the regulatory environment, which, of course, uh, remote ID is an aspect of, and public perception. They're necessarily dependent upon each other in order for the commercial drone industry to take off in the United States. A lot of people, um, individuals uh, and pilots, well, no, not pilots, a lot of members of the public issued um, responsive comments um, responding to the notice of proposed rulemaking indicating they were concerned about RID violating their respective privacy rights. What's your view on the privacy implications of remote ID? Well, that that is a concern, right? Because what I didn't get to, not only are these message elements publicly available, but the whole point of RID is for law enforcement and the intelligence community to be able to triangulate those message elements with registration data. So that's another facet of privacy that we're going to talk about. And what's important to know is the registration data includes the operator's cell phone number. And as you know, Grant, once law enforcement or the IC, the intelligence community, has, has a cell number, right, there, there can be persistent tracking of an individual through their phone. And so a number of concerns have been raised about privacy relating to RID. I'm going to take the operator's standpoint for one second because the comment you made about the public having access, the concern from the operator's standpoint, and I've talked to a number of them, is not only for their privacy but their safety. Because you've probably heard stories of operators getting attacked by, you know, legitimate operators that have commercial licenses that are just doing their job that have been getting attacked by people uh, because they're flying a drone, maybe too, too close to them or something. And so operators are very concerned about their privacy for that reason and, and relatedly their safety. And then a number of folks have raised this issue of, you know, when you think about privacy from a constitutional standpoint, you think about the Fourth Amendment and law enforcement's access to information and, you know, how does how does that all work? Well, in this instance, what I would say is uh, law enforcement, you know, could have access to this information. But what I would also suggest is that they would require a warrant if they're going to dive deep into say, for example, third-party USS information that they're holding, you know, maybe maybe a pattern of life, right, on, on a particular operator. So the, I think there's a lot of concerns out there, but from a myth-busting perspective, I would hope that the normal constitutional requirements would apply despite what a regulation might suggest. Absolutely. And, and while we're discussing privacy, What's your opinion on the remote ID proposal in terms of whether it violates the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act? Yeah, absolutely. Some some folks have raised this issue as well, right? So they raise Fourth Amendment privacy issues. They raise FISA issues. And the thing with the FISA is that it's directly tied to the Fourth Amendment because when you look at that statute and you look at the definition of electronic surveillance, it it specifically loops in the language that you find in the Fourth Amendment. It has a probable cause requirement uh, and and things of that nature. So, you know, for again, for the uninitiated, the FISA allows the intelligence community, vice the law enforcement community, to conduct electronic surveillance or other 
authorized activities to target foreign powers and their agents, right? That that might be uh, looking basically terrorists. I mean, that's that's what the FISA is all about. But the the point of the FISA is to protect United States citizens' constitutional rights under the Fourth Amendment, and so that's why you see that linkage there. And so so to the extent that the Fourth Amendment would require law enforcement to obtain a warrant for certain information. Therefore, it would also require the intelligence community to obtain a FISA warrant in similar circumstances under the FISA statute and, and its amendments. Absolutely. The Fourth Amendment's been an outlying issue in terms of drone use for a while now. And it's always one that, you know, the legal community uh, discusses and shines a light on because there are very real privacy implications that can be that can arise when you have for for back for lack of a better term a machine gathering confidential information you know there certainly are privacy implications involved and so i i suspect we will see a lot more of the fourth amendment issues arising as this technology becomes more and more widespread do you agree absolutely grant it may seem that I oversimplified this Fourth Amendment issue, and that was really not my intent. The point is, if law enforcement needs a warrant, therefore the IC community would need a warrant. But the open issue in this area is, when does that apply? And that's where the case law becomes applicable. And the case law in the, in, in the area of advanced technologies, it's not really settled. So. From the Supreme Court standpoint, there are cases on both sides of the fence, if you will, here. So uh, let's talk for a second about U.S. versus Miller and Smith versus Maryland. Those cases were in the area of what we'll call notice and consent. And those cases, in those cases, the Supreme Court upheld the idea that voluntarily consenting to provide information to third-party providers essentially obliterates one's reasonable expectation of privacy and so therefore no warrant is required. On the other hand, there's two cases that seem to indicate a warrant would be required in cases where there's persistent geolocation tracking or where geolocation information is sought. One, and I'm sure a lot of the folks on this net will be familiar with it just because it got a lot of play a couple years ago is U.S. versus Jones. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that the police using a GPS tracking device on a, on a suspect's car did require a warrant. It was in the concurring opinions where this specter was raised that persistent geolocation tracking could constitute an invasion of privacy, requiring a warrant as well. And then in the Carpenter case, this one involved cell tower data and uh, similar to like the RID message elements that will be stored at US, you know, third party USSs, perhaps this could be invoked by the Carpenter case. Absolutely. And I'm not alone in finding that the privacy law jurisprudence um, pertaining to new technologies is just absolutely fascinating. And I suspect we'll just see more and more of those cases pop up. 
And one of the things that I do when I'm advising drone clients is, of course, um, they are required under federal law to implement a privacy policy. And as remote ID comes into focus, I suspect that I'm going to be working with my clients to refine those privacy policies to reflect the provisions of RID if and when they are passed. So I think all of us are kind of in the industry are going to have to just remain adaptable and be ready to recognize that this is a ever evolving issue. And for the reasons you mentioned, there is no bright line. In some cases, the court may find that an expectation of privacy exists. In other cases, it does not. Now, we've talked about the Fourth Amendment. I also want to talk about another constitutional issue that is implicated by remote ID, and that's the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. What do you think about some claims that we're hearing that the remote ID rule, if passed as proposed, would require just compensation under the Fifth Amendment takings clause? You know, Grant, folks have raised this issue as well, and from a myth-busting standpoint, I'm, I'm going to say that it, it's there's no issue here. Because when you think about the Fifth Amendment takings clause, first of all, people don't appreciate that under the Fifth Amendment, the government can actually take private property. That's the whole point. It just requires them to provide just compensation. So that's kind of a nuance I think that's lost on a lot of people. Uh, but in in this case, the Fifth Amendment takings clause, what it says is, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. It's what we call eminent domain. And when you think about the Fifth Amendment, it's typically... Uh, folks typically think about real property or real estate, if you will. Uh, you know, the obvious physical taking or land grab. The government needs an easement across your property to, to lay down a railroad or something like that. Now, this concept hasn't been applied to the air and easements over property, where, you know, you probably heard of cases where the government has prohibited folks from maybe building, uh, a, a constructing their building higher you know, for, for many, many reasons. And um, the interesting thing about this takings clause, it's actually been applied to personal property. And when I say personal property, it's not like your physical land. It's it's uh, tangible things like in the case that I'm talking about, it was actually Horn versus Department of Agriculture involved raisins, a raisin crop where the government had a regulation. Yeah, the government had a regulation that required uh, raisin growers to give them a certain percent of their crop and that was found to violate the takings clause because there was no not sufficient compensation going back to those farmers for that so the obvious physical taking of these things but then there's this thing called a regulatory taking and that Exactly. This this is where a regulation has this effect of physically, you know, could be physically taking your property. And those are the cases, you know, really, I think that are the stronger cases, more obvious, even though it's a regulation. Things like uh, where a regulation might, I, I know the one case, uh, let's see, Loretto versus Teleprompter, Manhattan CATV Corporation. This, this was a local regulation that uh, allowed a television cable company to install a cable line across an apartment building, but because the cable was physically attached to the building, it was almost tantamount to a physical taking. So you have that 
that physical kind of nexus there. Um, another line of cases in this regulatory taking area is where the regulation basically deprives the uh, property owner of all economical beneficial uses of the property. And the seminal case there from the Supreme Court is Lucas versus South Carolina Coastal Council, where uh, the property owner had bought this beautiful piece of property in uh, on the South Carolina coast. A regulation was later, um, you know, put down where they it prohibited them from building uh, their dream home on this property. And because of that, the Supreme Court found that essentially deprive the owner of all economical beneficial use of of the property and so the the case you just mentioned grant this penn central versus new york city uh, was kind of one of these air rights cases uh, actually where um, the penn central station they wanted to build office buildings above uh, the existing tower and a regulation prohibited them from doing it. I think it was historical purposes, but they're the, the Supreme Court, if, it, if it's not like an obvious physical invasion, right? If it doesn't deprive you of all economical benefits, <clears throat> then there's like a three-part test. And they look at the economic impact on the property owner, the extent to which the regulation interferes with investments backed uh, expectations in that land and the character or extent of the government action and so those those are kind of the three things and the reason why I say that for RID I don't see a a um, successful Fifth Amendment takings clause challenge here especially for operators is number one the rule doesn't it's not a land grab right it's not even a property grab they're not physically taking things away. In fact, the FAA is prohibited, even if you're violating their current regulations or the RID rule from taking your drone. Like that's just not, not permitted. So all of those things about physical takings go away. So from a regulatory standpoint, then the nuance here and why I don't think a claim would be successful is because, you know, people have said, oh, well, look, this renders my, my drone useless. I can't use my land because I can't even fly my drone over my backyard to take pictures of my kids 100 feet off the ground. But under the Supreme Court cases, if there's any economical use of, they don't separate the air rights from the land rights for this analysis. So if there's any economical use of your actual property, like your house, then you're, you're going to, this is going to fail. And you know, similar, yeah, similarly under the three-part test, you know, that first part is the economical impacts. And so I think that's, that's kind of the, that's the, I think, linchpin of, of why folks will not prevail on a Fifth Amendment takings argument here. Absolutely. And I tend to agree with you, Don. And, um, you know, we're almost out of time, but I definitely want to have you back on the program to discuss these fascinating legal issues. Of course, as a practicing attorney that represents various companies in the drone industry, um, this discussion has been very, very interesting 
to, to me, and I'm sure it is to our listeners as well. So I really appreciate your insight, especially given your 25-year uh, career as an Air Force, uh, someone who's involved in the Air Force and serving our country. So thank you for that. Uh, before we close, why don't you tell our listeners where they can learn more about the things that you and I discussed today? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said up front, I, I do encourage folks to, to check out my P3 Tech website because I have all of my articles hung up there on the news page. And so that I think that's a great place to look. The second thing, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, was my was the Law Tech Connect CLE workshop that I'm hosting at uh, in conjunction with the Commercial UAV Americas. And right now it's scheduled for September 15th at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. As far as I know, so far so good. Uh, and um, hopefully that will remain the case. Registration should open soon, but I'm excited to also announce that the American Bar Association's Science and Technology Law section is serving as a non-financial co-sponsor of that event. And as I said, it's going to be this first-of-its-kind event. The reason why I'm putting this thing on is because I think it's so important for attorneys to have dialogue with you know, our in industrial partners, the operators, the end engineers, the policymakers, we have to have these frank discussions with each other uh, to, to get this right. As you said, one of the primary things is getting the regulations right. And frankly, attorneys have a hand in that. Uh, so we're going to have amazing faculty and um, including you. Uh, so listeners, list, listeners grant is on is on one of the panels. And um, excited also to announce it for the attorneys that, that sign up, we do have CLE, or Continuing Legal Education Credit, available. It's already been approved by the State of Nevada CLE Board for seven credits, six general and one substance of use. So uh, I think it's going to be really awesome. We've got not only you, Grant, of course, but uh, Jonathan Ruprecht, who's I'm sure a well, but well known by, by your listener audience, drone pilot and lawyer both. We've got GC and policymakers for Arrows, Kitty Hawk, Skyward, Skydio. Uh, we've got some of the best law firm practitioners in this area and academics. So it's it's going to be amazing. Hope to see everybody there. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. I think it, it's a phenomenal event. And like you said, it's so critical that lawyers do play a role in meeting with operators and business owners and everyone working together to move this industry forward. So congratulations on this event, Dawn. I think it's going to be a, a smash hit. Well, thanks so much, Grant. And, and again, thank you so much for the opportunity to spend time with you and, and your audience out there. Uh, I hope everybody takes care and uh, is well. Thank you. Don Zoldai, thank you for being on the program. Be sure to tune in next week to Drones in America by Market Scale.